So as we looked at Intergen data, what we did was we said, look, give us data. We will turn around and send you back. Here's when these life events are likely to happen. More importantly, here's when the life events, especially around critical illnesses, are likely to happen. Because people don't plan for those types of things. They don't plan for a heart attack. You don't plan to get cancer. But when it happens, you have to adjust. You have to make changes. Come on in and sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 105 of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, the founder and CEO of Ezra Group Consulting. Over the past 16 years, we've worked with hundreds of fintech vendors and enterprise wealth management firms to guide them towards making better business and technology decisions. I'm going to give a quick shout out to our head of research, Jean Sullivan, and the terrific work she and her team have been doing this year. If your company has a software product that you're selling to asset managers, broker dealers, RIAs, or other firms, go to our website now. Don't wait. Go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, and fill out the Contact Us form, and let's get a call to find out more about what your needs are. Our research team can deliver a wide range of market insights, including competitive analysis, addressable and obtainable market estimates, sales targeting, and insights on buying decisions, and a whole lot more. Your firm needs this data to be successful, and you can get start the process rolling by going to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com. All right, that's the end of the self-promotional segment. This uh, podcast features interviews, news, and analysis on the trends and best practices in wealth in technology for wealth management, asset management, and related areas. And this episode is part of our July focus, which is on the crossroads of health and wealth. Uh, we're talking to the founders of innovative startups who are merging health and wealth to help financial advisors build stronger relationships, improve outcomes, and enrich their clients' lives. A couple of housekeeping tasks before I forget. A quick shout out to our sponsor, the Invest in Others Foundation. Please go to investinothers.org and be sure to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. And now let's get this episode started. Happy to introduce our guest for this episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. It is Robert Kirk, CEO and founder of Intergen Data. Hey, Robert, how's it going, man? Doing awesome. Thank you for having me here, Craig. Great to be here. I'm glad you can make it. I'm glad we could organize this and coordinate our schedules and our calendars to get you on the program. We've been talking for such a long time about this. So having you here, I'm really psyched. Um, where we, uh, Tell everyone where you are calling in from, my friend. Calling in from Dallas, Texas. Love Dallas. Hate the football team. Love the people. Great place to be. Clients there. Spend a lot of time in the Dallas area. Uh, checking out all the barbecue. My favorite thing was going. I would go there every other week. Um, so I was staying in Dallas a week, then home a week, then back and forth. And I would, every time I was there, I would try a different barbecue place. And it was so uh, that was one of my favorite things to do. Absolutely. And and as a Cowboy fan, I also don't like the Cowboys and where we've been for the last few years. So I understand that that plight of yours as well. And there you go. So um, we can do a whole sports podcast next time. But now we're doing a tech podcast. So talk to us about Intergen data. Give us a 30 second elevator pitch. 
Absolutely. So 30 seconds. Uh, we have built proprietary technology that predicts life events. We provide this data to businesses so they can better align their products and services to their clients' needs, do it proactively and in a regulatory manner. A regulatory compliant manner. Absolutely. It's got to be say. there. Yeah. And <laughs> full disclaimer, I am on the advisory board for InterGen Data because I like it so much. I think it's a great idea, great product, great technology. Uh, and I'm not the only one who thinks it's a great idea. You've really been getting a lot of traction from fintech and insurtech accelerators. Can you talk about some of the most recent uh, ones you guys are, are joining? Yeah, so we had uh, recently been in uh, the MetLife Accelerator, which was tremendous. That gained us uh, a lot of notoriety. It also brought us into the insurance world for many different reasons. One on the the PNC, the life side, also the regulatory perspective as well. And then uh, as of uh, the beginning of April, we got into Plug and Plays Accelerator, the Silicon Valley InsureTech Accelerator. And that's provided us a tremendous amount of exposure to numerous other insurance companies who are now talking to us about how our data can be used within their companies. So for, for people who are listening who aren't familiar with these, what, what's the, um, you talk about the plug and play accelerator, what is that? Ah, okay, so plug and play is uh, a well-known entity, kind of like Techstars or Y Combinator. And then what they do is uh, plug and play has a group of companies that are considered their partners. So there are anyone's from, you know, USAA to Aflac to uh, all name brand companies, large corporations. And plug and play facilitates having meetings where they say to the companies like an Aflac or USAA, what are your problems? What are your hurdles? What are you trying to address? And kind of like an outsourced vendor, um, uh, almost more like a, a camp, they really go through and talk to us as startups and say, Here's the problems that these large firms are trying to overcome. Does your solution fit their problems? Can your solution provide answers to their problems, whether it's on personalization, hyper-personalization, defining risk, uh, defining better product fit? And when we go through that, they facilitate that meeting between the two companies. They're kind of like the go-between, kind of that R&D department of those firms. And that's what they really facilitate. And then they, they go out and get groups of companies to be in the cohorts. And then they say, this is the class. And then they go kind of promote that. Yeah, I see these all over the country. It's become a huge deal. I mean, you know, Y Combinator used to be one of the, the only ones out at, at one point. Now everyone seems to be doing it, but it's a great idea. I mean, all these firms need exposure. They need money. They also need connections and advice in the in whatever particular industry they are in. And you guys cross a number of industries. You're, you're not just in insurance, for example. You also help other other firms. And we wanted to talk about a couple of different case studies that uh, you guys are supporting. So can you talk about the areas uh, around Reg BI, KYC, suitability that your product is helping? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that question. So. Some of the traction that we've gotten recently, over the past couple of months, we, we finalized uh, two proof of concepts with real data, with real customers. One of those happened to be with a company by the name of Giacomo. Uh, and what we did was we looked at Reg BI specifically uh, for several reasons. As we know, 
governance risk and compliance are ever increasing concern. Regulators are demanding that firms basically identify uh, systemic risk proactively. And at the heart of this is really advice. So if you're looking at advice, it's is there a reasonable basis for believing that any series of recommended transactions, even if they're suitable, if they're viewed in isolation, are they excessive or unsuitable for a customer? If you look at the entire profile or picture of that person, and it's not just a single person, it's you, it's your, your wife, your family, your children, your extended family. So as we looked at Intergen data, what we did was we said, look, give us data, we will turn around and send you back. Here's when these life events are likely to happen. More importantly, here's when the life events, especially around critical illnesses are likely to happen. Because people don't plan for those types of things. They don't plan for a heart attack. You don't plan to get cancer. But when it happens, you have to adjust. You have to make changes. So we started to say in KYC and suitability, you have time horizon, you have risk, you have investment amount, you have asset allocation, which are all the standard ways of looking at it. But when you look at the data we're providing, it's, well, wait a minute, this could happen. And even though your risk profile says this is good and you have a good amount of investable assets, the likelihood of you getting involved with say something like a variable annuity, it's an illiquid investment. So I may be the perfect target. I may be 53, making the most amount of money in my life or whatever the situation is, I don't have a lot of debt. So something like that could be a good vehicle. However, if I found out five minutes later that I had an 80% chance or 90% chance of cancer, I'm gonna need the capital rather than an illiquid investment. So it's combining our expected expenses from a life perspective looking at it as a whole in a householding perspective, and then saying, I might need more liquidity tomorrow than I do today. So even though you're asking me the right questions, you're comparing me to only a point in time situation, but you're not taking into account the things that might happen. And in doing so, we found out that you can actually look at that data and say it's peer to peer comparison today, but also future peer to expected expenses, and therefore it may not be a suitable transaction for you. So we basically combine both the life events, expenses of tomorrow with what the product is today. And we found that with within the variable annuity space, we could really determine if this is something that should be recommended or not. This is one of my favorite use cases for intergen data and because it's something nobody thinks about. As you mentioned, everything's point in time. Everything we see, every tool is always, what do you got today? And then it projects that out into the future without much changes. You know, they'll, they'll, they may adjust it for capital markets assumptions a bit. Um, maybe if they're doing Monte Carlo, they'll show you some sort of range, but that's just the market performance. It doesn't look at your own performance. Like what's my health performance? I, I need a Monte Carlo for my health. You know, what are the diff- what's a thousand right what's a thousand simulations of what can happen to me over the next 40 years and that's how i want to see my expected expenses analyzed and that's like as you mentioned how you determine a real suitability yeah you're right so i look at it this way i'm 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 53 my you know my wife's younger than me uh, i've got two daughters 16 and 13 so in a few years they're going to be going to college but in a few years, 
what if I also have a medical or an illness or something chronic that I have to deal with? What if I have to also deal with my in-laws or my parents? All of these things in a life come together at one point. So the more you can measure, the better you can understand that. That's what we need is we need to look ahead on the things that are unplanned and say, what can we take into consideration? Like you said, the Monte Carlo scenario, give me a range of things. Let me find out. That's, that's really the goal. So you're spot on with that. Indeed. And the, so when you talk about um, a, a phrase you mentioned, which I think is really something you want to dive into is, is it empirically defensible? And we never really thought of that until Reg BI came around. So how does uh, how does intergen data you know, feed? You know, you're, you're not a, well, you're not a financial planning tool yourself, um, but you feed other tools with your data and your analysis. So how do how does your data and your analytics make uh, other tools better at empirical defense? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and you are you are spot on. We we are not a financial planning tool. We are not a risk tool. We are extra data elements that we believe should be incorporated into those products and to help make them more contextually relevant and then help make their predictions and their models more accurate. So as an example, what we did in this, in this proof of concept, we took in almost 12,000 variable annuity transactions. And yes, of course, we were able to process it in under 15 minutes. But what we did is we took a look at the reputational, regulatory, and financial risk of the company. And when we ran these algorithms on top of their transactional data, we were able to instantly find, okay, you do not have enough risk tolerance information across some, some time horizons are missing, some age is missing, some incomes aren't correct. And when you look at them in comparison, they're not quite there. What I mean by that is, out of that original uh, approximate 12,000 transactions, 92% didn't have enough data. So right there, we meant here is empirical evidence that says you need to go do a data cleanup and get your advisors and your people to go back and ask more questions. Find out if this data is, is really true or missing. And if it's missing, okay, fulfill it. Now, of that, there remained about a thousand transactions we were able to analyze. And 45% of them were in compliance. And we said, hey, these are straight down the middle. They're not risky. These are pretty decent, easily defensible, we like to say. But of the ones that weren't, about half of them, right, we turned around and said, here's some moderate risk. These need review. And what I mean by that is two things. Whether it was the risk tolerance of that person does not match the account goals or does not match the age or the income. This is standard type of compliance. But when we turn around and say, oh, by the way, 23% of these people are likely to get cancer or have a heart attack. And here's what that cash flow is. That's based on 4.2 million people like them, 3.6 million people like them, because we took the, the US data that we gather, the 140 million rows of data that we have and say, this is typically what happens to this type of a person living in this area of this race, of this gender, of this background. This is something you need to incorporate. So when I say empirically evidence, it's not guesswork. It's saying, hey, this is based on government data, on US data, and your client data. Now you can go back and say, these are the reasons why we did or did not evidence why we should want to, uh, let's say, purchase an annuity, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And that's the defensible part, that you show the yeah. data, 
we show you work. Here's how we got here. Here's why we're saying this. It's not just a guess. It's not random. It's not, it's not based on faulty assumptions or opinions. It's based on actual data that we've analyzed and reviewed. And, and back to the clean part, you know, I, I was recording a podcast earlier and you know, we talk a lot about data and just that part of your business model where you force the client, whether it's an insurance company or, or a wealth management company, to look at their data and go, you know, 92% of our data is not clean. 92% of our records are missing something. That's hugely valuable to them. And that, you know, that, and that, that's, they would not know that until if they didn't go through this analysis and they wouldn't realize it until it's too late. Like when they needed some information, they needed a report for regulatory or other issues. Now you've shown them that. So it gives them a huge jump on getting their data house in order. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, first knowing, and, and that's the part about the proactiveness that the SEC is asking and what FINRA is asking for. Even recent news announcements talk about, hey, we're going to, Gensler said, we're going to enforce Reg BI as it exists. Well, that means they're going to start looking for evidence. They're going to start looking for why you recommended something and how you recommended something because they're looking for data. They're looking for what is the model. And it's not just a, a, a person's guess or an advisor's educated guess. Here's some evidence behind it. And if you don't have that information, then go clean it up. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It means you can go get it done. And it gives you the ability to be proactive and not reactive. And that's what that's what the regulators don't want to see is you constantly being in a reactive state. They want to see you actually going out and doing something about it. Yeah, it's another reason why I really like what you guys were doing at Intergen Data because my company, uh, Ezra Group, we have launched a series of data as an asset uh, assessment uh, products. They're, they're, they're consulting packages to review broker-dealers, insurance companies, and other firms, their data, but looking at it as an asset and doing these kind of cleanups, these reviews of infrastructure, frameworks, overlapping you know, data, data models and things. And the fact that you're doing that already uh, is huge and it provides a lot of value to companies. Well, thank you. We hope so. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing this kind of version into uh, some more revenue for us as we go forward this year. Indeed. So moving on to the next uh, next area. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to re keep repeating myself. I, I, I really like this um, uh, use case as well. And I, I, this is one of the use cases I talk about when people ask me, you know, what's my 30 second um, overview of Intergen is, is the cross-sell upsell opportunities for insurance and the insurance shortfall analysis. Can you explain how that works? Yeah, so this is something we did after, you know, with uh, with our accelerator and during the accelerator part with MetLife. And we were able to take some anonymized customer data. And what we were able to do is to use that data to show them and where to pinpoint A, who to market to, B, why to market to somebody, and see how much they need to really purchase on the insurance side. As you know, every year all employees get up towards the end of the year and they've got to enroll into their 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 corporate insurance plans and you got to opt in and it's is it high deductible low deductible medium deductible life health this and it always ends up being a tough decision because you don't know how much you should purchase but if you ask people they'll say maybe an insurance agent will say purchase as much as you can well that's not really the answer the answer is purchase as much as you need to for the reasons and specific areas you have to 
So what we did was we took in an employee plan and we took in some data. Again, it's anonymized. And we were able to use that data and ping it against our system. And what we came back with was a couple of things. We said, look, let's look for all the critical illnesses that these people might have, their employees, over the course of one, three, five, and 10 years. And let's see if it's, if it's a big amount. And what we found out over the course between five and 10 years was that this one employer, this one employer they were likely to have about almost 46% of their employees have more critical illnesses than they were projected based on what they had for insurance. Now, what I mean by that is when they came back with our answer, it ended up being a $20 million shortfall. So think of, you know, 1200 employees and think of 600 of them saying they're going to be in five to 10 years, $20 million of expenses, and they don't have that in terms of their coverage. So all of a sudden we knew, oh my gosh, whether it was cancer or heart attacks or diabetes or all these different types of diseases, that they're gonna have issues. Specifically, we were able to identify the ones that had enough coverage that were good, that was group one. Group two were people that said, hey, if you make a small adjustment, 20 to $30 a month today, over the course of the next five years or so, you're gonna be okay, and that was group two. And then group three, well, they were the group that really needed the most help. And we found evidence of people where some of their employees, and here's one example, where one employee was gonna, was gonna have about $180,000 shortfall in expected critical illness and expenses, and she makes $25,000 a year. There's no way for her to overcome that type of a problem. Even if we were 50% wrong and it's a $90,000 difference, she still can't make that up. So that becomes a problem for lost wages, lost time. But what about the people? How do you care for them? How do you help them? And by us able to identify that, that allowed them to understand from a hospital indemnity, critical illness, optional life, Here's other products we can sell to this person or that that person should use to help overcome that difference. And that's massive. That's a huge thing for the employee, for the employer, and it makes everyone look good. It's kind of a win-win situation. Uh, it is, and, and I thought that was a, a huge benefit. But I wanted to drill down on, on one piece of that. When you said 46% of the employees were projected to have more illnesses, is that a probability analysis where you said that they're this likely you know, this probability likely or you know, this percentage more likely to get an illness or how does that work? Yeah, so that works by um, the way we look at everything. It's by race and by gender and by where you live and what you do. So if you think about it, um, the short answer is yes, it is a probability study. And then secondly, upon that, it's probability based on who you are. So if you think about let's say, look at all the cancers in the world. You build a big bell curve. And within that bell curve, that might affect X million people. But then it's a big bell curve based on, let's say myself, Native American Indian. So I'm a smaller subsection. And I happen to be male, I'm a smaller subsection. But I happen to work in Texas in financial services. So based on that, I know the core group of people. And then I can say, does this represent a true number in accordance to the national statistics of how many people get cancer? based on your age, based on your race. And then we combine that data to say, this is the likelihood of you getting this disease 
and this is the likelihood of you um, having to pay for these and typically at what age. So that's how we do the, the grunt work of it, but it does come out and say X million of people, X percentage of this population, here's the propensity number. So we assign that. And if it's greater than 50%, we include it. If it's under 50%, we exclude it. So that way it becomes kind of binary. I'd like to take a break from this episode to talk about our sponsor, the Invest in Others Charitable Foundation. Invest in Others recognizes individuals and advisory firms that are making a difference by donating their time and money to causes that matter to them. By sharing their stories and awarding funding to organizations they care about, Invest in Others raises awareness, encourages others to get involved, channels additional resources to those in need, and demonstrates the generosity of the financial advice industry. I've been involved with Invest in Others for a number of years, and we just did our judging. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to be asked to be a judge for some of their um, uh, award, awards, and the one we just did was Volunteer of the Year. So we reviewed 10 different uh, advisors and their charities and what they gave to their charities, the work they've done over many years, some more than a decade of work with their charities to try to come down to which one was the volunteer of the year. And the volunteer of the year, their charity will receive $50,000. The second and third place runners up get $20,000. And I believe the next three uh, get $2,500. So a lot of uh, these charities are getting some money. You know, the number one gets 50,000, really hard to pick. There's a lot of great charities out there. I would encourage you to go to investinothers.org uh, read about what they're doing. They're good work. Meet their board of directors. Look at their grants for good, and make a donation. Your hopefully your your company will will match it. That means you can do double the good for a lot of great charities. Uh, the Invest in Others Foundation. Yeah, I think all this stuff is really cool because it's, it's something that's really not being done at any other level, and there's so much value across the spectrum of whether it's wealth or insurance or other other aspects to be able to provide this kind of information. But uh, I, I don't want to dwell too much on, on that because we've got another use case I wanted to, to sneak in on this, uh, on this uh, podcast. So can we talk about um, what, uh, what I was calling the zip plus four, but it's really your, um, your, your increasing your predictive capabilities uh, around um, you know, expanding partnerships with other data providers. And this particular data was anonymized tax information and and how can you use that data to provide more value and and, and more uh, accurate results for some wealth management firms yeah so that's <clears throat> excuse me so that's really that's a, a really good question um, for several reasons first of all data can either help us on a quantitative side or it can help us on a qualitative side and when we look at the quantitative side what we're looking at is specifics around actual numbers and if you think about the averages of where people make money, right? So when does a person make the most amount of money in their life? Well, there's technically two answers. One is 51 for 20% of America, and the second number is 47 for 80% of America. But the differences between the two are massive. The differences are between $160,000 and $65,000. So the 20% of America that makes the most amount of money at their, at their life at 51 tend to have similar jobs. They're lawyers, they're doctors, 
And so what you realize is they have extra degrees. Those extra degrees are something that took them four more years. So if you go back and just push off the earnings four years, then what happens is you're able to earn more. Now, what's important about this is if you look at the zip codes and you look at zip code plus four, you're looking at where people tend to get the most amount of incomes. Well, if they're lawyers and doctors, they tend to be in the larger cities, but that's also where larger costs are. So as we start to realize where people live and what they do, it allows us to quickly get rid of the noise. So if I live in Kankakee or Walla Walla, Washington or, or Paris, Texas, the likelihood of me having a million dollar salary is less. The likelihood of me having a million dollar salary is in the larger cities. So that's standard, we kind of know it, but now we can prove this down to the zip code plus four. So what I mean by that is the data providers we're looking at give us 150 million households of data, 200 million adults in the US. We have 1400 data elements that we can start to look at. So imagine being able to say, you don't have to ask 20 questions to understand my financial place in this world. Just say, what's your zip code plus four? And instantly I can get all the noise, take it away. And now you can start to say, okay, now I have a good subgroup. Now tell me what you do. Now tell me a few more things. And I can actually start building a financial model based on who you are because of where you live. So hopefully that makes sense to you, but that's what we're looking at it for. It's, it's, personal, it's business, it's gathering that market intelligence and being able to use that to really drive wealth and asset management. Oh, it makes sense to me. Absolutely. That's one of my pet peeves is every vendor you talk to asks the same questions, right? And even even the small questions start becoming annoying because every website asks the same question. You know, what's your city state zip? What's you know, your, your, uh, your, your annual income? What's your assets? What's this? What's that? And what you're saying, if I can paraphrase, is all I really need to give you is my zip plus four. And then you can assign a baseline, the median value of assets under management, the median value of income and other assets. That may not be exactly right, but at least it puts me in the ballpark. So you can do estimates where you can say, well, how much above or below are you from these numbers, which saves a lot of time. Yes. yes. And well, think about your statement just now. What is your, your address, your city, your state? Well, if you know the zip, you already know the city and state. Why ask the city and state? You don't oh, need that, it. That's my pet peeve. Right? Everyone's like, well, <laughs> they're confirming who you are. Well, what, what, where do you live? I live in East Brunswick, New Jersey. What's the zip? I live in East Brunswick, New Jersey. I know the zip. <laughs> that doesn't verify anything. You're not doing, you're not providing no. any value by making me give you the zip. I should just give you the zip and nothing else. Then you should know what city yeah. and state I live in but they all ask for everything. It's over and over again. It, it, it bugs me too, because at that point you realize that, so basically the amount of data that we can get from the zip plus four basically says, okay, I know the household income on the median for that whole zip plus four. I know the capital gains. I know the interest. I know the tax loss carry forwards. I know the typical pensions and annuities. Think about all your schedules you submit to the IRS. Right. That's comes CD. from the tax, the anonymized tax data you're getting. Correct. Correct. And so all of a sudden you realize that you don't have to ask all of that. And like you said, present a different use case where all of a sudden you're like, well, I make a little more, I make a little less. It becomes a slider bar adjustment. It's, it's a much better experience for the customer. And it's actually something that relates to you. You don't have to say, oh, I got to fill this all out again. It's, that's the nightmare scenario.
Yeah, and also you can take steps. Now, depending on what your your user experience is, you can provide more information to the client right away without asking for all that. Because you can, you you know, even though let's I'm just making these numbers up. If you're if you live in a particular area, and the median household income is seventy five thousand, but you make eighty seven thousand, that's not going to change much of what I advise, much of the advice I give you. That difference. So I can just give you the advice. It doesn't really matter whether there's a certain range above or below the median that the same advice holds true. Would that be, is that a true statement? Yeah, no, that is a true statement. And, and that's where we say that's your first step. Let's change the way it's done. Secondly, now let's think about how else we can change things, right? So like you said, if it's 75 or 68 or 72, that's small variance. But let's say I'm Native American Indian. I have a, a large propensity to type 2 diabetes, to alcoholism, to you know Alzheimer's. Okay, well, at what age does that typically happen? We're going to give you that data as well. So now you already know my expenses going forward almost instantly. One question, zip, boom. I mean, of course, I can tell you some a whole bunch of data we collect that may be not be useful, but all the people that speak a Croatian language in Allegheny County in Pennsylvania. But in reality, who cares, right? So it's great to know it, but we've got to make sure that that information is really contextually relevant. And that's what we're saying. Make it relevant. Make it quick. You don't need to ask 50 questions. People speak Croatian or Hungarian. I mean, my, one of my grandfathers was Hungarian. <laughs> try to look, try to, trying to uh, translate his birth certificate was a real pain in the ass in, in, in Hungarian. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you're talking about. So um, wrapping up because we're, we are running out of time. Um, Talking about the, um, so closing statements, we're, we're talking about the, the intersection of health and wealth and how they're coming together and how they're merging and how they really shouldn't be separate because there, there's so much interaction. Can you, so can you talk a bit, a bit about how uh, intergen data is helping um, advisors merge health and wealth? Yeah, so in, uh, it goes along the same lines as some of the increasing our predictive capabilities, right? It's additional data sets. So having data around emergency medical records, having data around claims, you know, we can take in $7.8 million or 7.8 billion claims data. We can take in all the prescription data of what's typically happened, knowing, you know, whether it's a 11 billion RX claims and here's what people are spending their money on. You have right now, I think by 2030, the most amount of people, all the baby boomers will be over the age of 65. This is a huge silver tsunami on its way. And with medical, the way we are going today, the medical expenses are going higher. People are living longer, which means you're going to endure that cost longer. We have to be prepared for that. So if we, if we are not taking into context the medical expenses, the living expenses, then the question is, what are you doing today to help us get there, to help us overcome this? So it is a, it's a massive amount and a massive number that's coming forward, but it's also where the people who are doing the wealth, whether you're in the preserve, you know, the preservation mode, you hopefully you've gone past the accumulation mode for that group, but in other people, it's the accumulation, decumulation, preservation, utilization. You've got to combine that. The only way to do that is understand the cost of health, figure it into your asset allocation to say someone from 50 to 55 should be thinking this way, 55 to 60 should be asset allocated this way. And I almost think that it's 
if you think of it as sleeve management, right? So time sleeve or time series management, you need to fund and overfund the times when you, you're likely to have a lot of life events and issues. And the places that are, are overfunded that you don't need a lot of money, use that money to, to kind of fill in that gap. That's where I really see it happening. So I know I kind of went off topic a little bit, but I see the convergence between wealth management, asset allocation, and understanding the, the expenses of medical, it is becoming one and we're having to do it. And we've never had to do it before. This is, this is a huge amount of people that, you know, that, are, that are now getting to be 65 years old and older. There is no such thing as off topic on this podcast. Everything's fair game, but we, we're, we're, we've run out of time, man. You, you've, you've said it all. Um, can you give us, can you tell everyone who wants more information about intergen data, where they can find you? Absolutely. So you can always reach out, go to the website at www.intergendata.com free fail or excuse me, feel free to email me directly. Just Rob at intergendata.com. You can reach out to myself or anyone on the team. We'd be more than happy to answer any questions that you have. Brave man who gives out his email address on a podcast. Great. Rob, thanks so much for being here. Talk to you soon, man. Take care. Hey, it's Craig again. And here are my top three takeaways from this wonderful interview with Rob Kirk. Number one, how life event predictions should become an indispensable part of financial planning especially when it comes to choosing an illiquid investment that might become an issue if a person were to have a serious illness. Number two, empirical defensibility or empirically defensible. I, still, I just love that term. Uh, an advisor could use the detailed reports from a machine learning based engine like Intergen data to demonstrate that they made the best choices for their clients when it came to investments and insurance coverage, especially considering how active regulators are getting now enforcing things like Reg BI. Number three, insurance shortfall analysis. If I ran an insurance company, I would definitely be demanding this kind of uh, analysis and reporting on every group coverage contract that I had. If Intergen could find $20 million of coverage gaps in just one small population, imagine what they could turn up if they ran through all of their clients. And there you have it. If you listened all the way through to here, you're a dedicated learner, and I predict that you will go far in all of your life's endeavors. So you've got that going for you. In the meantime, click over to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email chock full of knowledge and industry goodness, and you'll be glad you did. I'll talk to everyone again next time. 